Well, good morning, Bel Air. Good morning, morning. Hey, how many of you were here last week and listened to the sermon, Join Us in Worship? Okay, fantastic. Now, how many of you maybe caught it over the last week? Okay, so this, this will make sense, what I'm about to say. I was shaken on Friday, two days ago, but I wasn't shaken in the right way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I made a phone call to the doctor and uh, the lady at the front desk, well-meaning, said, uh, you need to hang up right now. You need to go to the ER because I think you're having a stroke. And then I called another doctor. Because <laughs> I'm shaken, right? And I can't, literally can't process what was just said. And I call somebody else and they say, you need to come in right away because we want to rule out MS and Parkinson's. How was your Friday? Uh, the reason why I asked if you were here last week or the week before is because I talked about, as we started a brand new series on what is the church for, I simply shared last week that the church is for being shaken by the right thing. And I made the point last week that when we are in the presence of God, when we worship God, the word worship literally means to give worth to something. When you focus your attention on the almighty, holy, all-powerful God, then actually you are shaken, but shaken in a way unlike anything else that shakes you. It actually shakes off the bitterness, it shakes off the worry, it shakes off the anxiety, and it actually gives you a foundation, a peace, a security, so that you can go out in the world with confidence, brave, courageous, so that nothing else in life can shake you. Why would the senior pastor of Billard Church be shaken on a Friday? It's because worship is not a thing limited to a Sunday morning. Worship is not something limited to an hour on Sunday or in a particular place. We are called to be a people that live our lives as an act of worship. And so as the week went along, I got a little busy. My focus got off of God, off of God's Word, off of giving worth to certain things. And so by the time I got to Friday... And I woke up and I could lift this foot like that. And I couldn't lift my left foot. That's why I called. So I go into the doctor and in the midst of all that, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting in Burbank and I run into one of you. Ramil, who hasn't been here all summer. And he saw me and he's like, Pastor, I haven't been there all summer. <laughs> And I've got my Dodger hat on. He's got his Dodger hat on. I'm like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, like, we're the church. Wherever we go, we are the church. How, how, how have you been? And he quickly tells me the story of this summer. He's been working in Orange County. In the midst of all of that, this man who's, I believe, coming up on his fourth knee surgery, has had surgery on both of his shoulders for a torn rotator cuff, who uh, has a bum wrist. In the midst of all that, has this joy, has this peace. I am shook. I'm literally, if my hand was out like this, I did it a couple of times, it literally was shaking. And this guy is cool as a cucumber going in there for another thing. And, and he starts to tell me, he hadn't listened to the sermon last week, he starts telling me, he says, Drew, you know, I've just learned over the years that really what you got to do is you got to focus on God. It's so easy to focus on your circumstances and kind of get overwhelmed by all those things and get, you know, flapped by those things. And the more you just focus on God, the more peace you have. And I'm like, can you come preach on Sunday? <laughs> Because I need to hear this again. And in a sense, he is right now because I was reminded 
in the waiting room at Orthopedic in Burbank, surrounded by all these people who are waiting, wondering what was going on, that we can worship God wherever we go. That we can actually, in the midst of being shook, in that moment, we can turn our attention back to God and say, you know what? You are better and bigger and more glorious than this. And God, you tell me in Scripture that you're going to heal me, and maybe it's this side of eternity, or maybe it's not until I'm in your presence, but you're going to heal. You have the last word. You are for me, not against me, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to put my focus and my energy on you. And I had this peace going, and, and I still, I have no idea what's going on. The doctor finally said, well, I don't know why it happened. Let's just give it a few weeks and come back. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. So in the midst of all this, I kind of have a, you know, kind of a droopy foot that's kind of sliding around, but I'm choosing to worship God. And some of you in the midst of this moment, maybe you've been shook by something somebody said a cancer diagnosis, uh, how much money is in your bank, what's going to happen this week that you're fearful of, you can choose in this moment to turn your attention back to God, to allow Him to shake that anxiety off you and choose to walk in boldness and encourage to be witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Well, here we are in week two of this three-week series, What is the Church For? And of the six great ends of the church that our denomination has really codified and described why we exist, one of them is this, that we exist for the shelter and the nurture and the spiritual fellowship of God's children. Second, it's to exhibit the kingdom of heaven to the world. But what does that look like? I want you to open up your ears, your hearts, your minds, as Andrew reads for us from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word. Why don't you pull out your Bibles if you have them in front of you or if you're in the front row. There's a little cubby right behind your leg. It's that Red Pew Bible. And if you have a mobile device or your own Bible that you brought from home, we are going to give our fingers a workout today. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation and back to Genesis through Revelation. And what I want us to do is I want us to trace two themes through all of Scripture. And unless I trace these themes through all of Scripture, then those ends of the church, the reasons why the church exists, one of them being, I said it before, that we exist for the shelter, the nurture, and the spiritual fellowship of God's children. Unless I trace those themes through Scripture, you'll never experience, you'll never be part of, you'll never have the power or the authority to bring that shelter, bring that nurture, to be part of that spiritual fellowship. Nor will you be able to exhibit God's kingdom, that kingdom of heaven here on earth to the world. So let me trace these things, and we're going to do quite a workout. And some of you are taking notes. Here's the first theme that I want to tra trace through all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and it's this. It's simply that God's home is the only place where your soul 
will find rest. It's the only place. St. Augustine said, my, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you, O Lord. God's home. You know, homes are unique. Homes are special. There's nothing else in all the world that's quite like home. Home is a place where you can rest, where you can be free, where you can express yourself, where you can be safe. Home is a place where you are fully accepted. Home is a place where you are the master, the queen, the lord, the king. Homes are very, very different. You can travel, you can go to the nicest hotels, and eventually there's a point where you're like, I just want to get home. Some of you have worked long hours, long weeks, long months, long seasons, and all you want to do is just get home and rest. Some of you have been away and you're stuck in traffic and you're just like, oh, if I could just get back home. Some of you have been in between homes and maybe circumstantially you are living with other people and it doesn't feel like it's your home. You see, there's this thing that we've heard it said so many times, there's no place quite like home, right? Well, what's interesting about home, this theme that runs throughout all of Scripture is that how God originally created us is that we were created to be at home with God, with each other, with ourselves, and with creation. And our original home was the garden. You can actually go to Genesis 1 and 2 and read all about it later on today. It's this idea that we lived in a place and in a state of shalom, that we were whole in our relationship with God, with each other, with ourselves, with creation, that we walked with God in the cool of the day, that we worked and there was no toil, that we were naked and unashamed, that there was goodness, that there was just this beautiful sense of what it meant to be free to be accepted, to be loved. The problem is that we chose our way rather than God's way. God was the master, the king, the Lord of that original home, and we wanted to have the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, we were cast out of our original home. And it says actually in Genesis 4, and this is why I want you to have your Bible, open it up to Genesis 4, 14. And in Genesis 4, 14, you have the first offspring of the first humans, and it's recorded that after a terrible murder where a brother kills a brother. It says in Genesis 4.14, where Cain speaks to God, today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me may kill me. Some translations say, you have hidden me from your face and I will now be homeless. I will now experience homelessness. You were most at home when you were before the face of God. And everything that you do to your home, your condo, your townhome, your mansion, your little footprint is simply just an echo of you yearning for, longing for, going back home. The landscaping you do, the fresh coat of paint, the addition, the remodel. It's our heart yearning for, it's our soul itching for the sense of going back home. But Scripture says throughout all of it that there's only one place that is truly home and it's before the face of God. That's why King David says, you can read about it later in Psalm 27, I want to be home with you. It's your face that I seek, that I long for. But if you fast forward, take a look at this. In Exodus 33, why don't you turn there right now? So there's this, this grand narrative that you can trace all the way through. 
that there's only one spot where you will find rest and joy and peace and refuge, and it's before the face of God. The problem is when you get to places like Exodus 33, we see that there's a problem, there's a disconnect. There's something that gets in the way of us experiencing that kind of home. And it says in Exodus 33, in verse 18, it's page 70 in your pew Bible, Moses says to God, show me your glory, I pray. And then God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God says, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. Let me summarize. Moses says to God, I want to see your glory, your holiness, your beauty, your weightiness, your significance. I want to see it. I want to come back home. I want to find rest and refuge in you. And what does God say? You can't look at my face. Why would God say that? You see, you've experienced this in a very human and a very real way. In fact, if you've ever offended somebody, how many of you have ever offended somebody? Let somebody down, yeah? Uh, after you offend someone, after you wrong someone, or if you betray someone, the last thing you want to do is let them see your face. The last thing you want to do is look them in the eye. And what's so interesting is you could see somebody across the room and you're kind of moving around the room because you don't want them to see you or you to see them. And what's so weird is you're okay with seeing the back of their head. You're okay with seeing their shoulder. But the moment you make eye contact, if there is a, an offense, there's terror, there's fear. We've experienced this as humans, and the truth is, Scripture says that because of our brokenness, the biblical word is sin, which literally means to miss the mark when we are self-absorbed, when we aim for the wrong things, when we worship the wrong things, when we contribute to evil in this world. Scripture says that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us don't deserve to look at the face of God because we've offended God. That's the reality of the human condition. You can trace it all the way through all of Scripture. There is this disconnect of us longing to be at home before the face of God. And you see it in all these different places. You can read about all the things that the nation of Israel did to be okay, to be fine in the presence of God. And they would give sacrifices. They would ritually cleanse themselves. There's a moment you can read about in Zechariah 3 later on where actually Zechariah has this vision of Joshua, who was the high priest... And this is getting closer to Yom Kippur. He's talking about that, which our Jewish brothers and sisters are going to celebrate in a couple of weeks. And Yom Kippur was this, this day of atonement, which is basically answering the question, how can I stand before the face of God and not be killed? And what would happen is the high priest would go through many, many, many different things to be holy, to be righteous, to be cleansed in order to go alone into the most holy of holies, to bring sacrifices to atone for, to cover over the sins of all the people of the nation of Israel. And so he would take ritualistic baths. He would cover himself in this glorious attire. He would stay up late at night praying with his friends and with the fellow priests. And Zephaniah 3, you can read it later, Zephaniah has this vision of Joshua who in his mind's eye and having this vision pictures him 
not clean but dirty, not covered in robes that are glorious, but robes that are filthy. This is the high priest. This is the only one who was allowed to actually enter into the dwelling place, the most holy of holies, where they believed that God dwelled. He was the only one, and if he couldn't go in, who could? This huge disconnect. And he's overwhelmed at this frantic religious activity that doesn't make you right in the face of God. And you see, the reason why I have to trace this theme all the way through Scripture is if I didn't talk about this, we could quickly look at caring for nurturing and sheltering and providing for the spiritual fellowship of God's children. We can look at that as just something that we do as an activity to make us right with God, to make God love us more, but all that is is just empty religion. And therefore, we would be using people to make ourselves right with God. And it's so easy to fall into that trap, to volunteer for the children's ministry, to become a pastor to join the prayer team because we feel like, gosh, if I do this, then God owes me. If I do this, then I'll be at home. But the truth is, is that we'll never be at home based upon our own works, our own strength, our own good deeds. But in the midst of all of that dream, in the midst of that vision, you can read about it later, in Zephaniah 3, there's this voice from heaven that says this, behold, I will send a branch. And my branch will clothe him with new garments. And you will invite your neighbors to come and to find rest under his vine and under his fig tree. What, what's, what's that all about? You see, Zephaniah had no idea, but he was prophesying about the one to come, Jesus the Christ, who we know in Scripture is the great high priest, who literally goes to the cross after living a perfect life. And in the midst of all of that, presents the last sacrifice that ever had to be presented to satisfy this disconnect that we can't go before the face of a holy God. And he wasn't up late at night with his friends praying. He was up late at night alone. He didn't go to the cross clothed in these great robes. He went to the cross naked. He didn't bring the blood of goats. He brought his own blood. And here's the good news of the gospel. Because of what Jesus did, his perfect life, his perfect death, the fact that he defeated death, you can now stand before the face of God. And God says, you are my beloved. You are my child. With you, I am well pleased. I love you. I adore you. Come, be in my family. Do you have any idea that only through Jesus Christ can you find your home? Then all the things that you're trying to build for your life, you want more money, you just want to move into this certain area, if you just have this relationship, if I just have a kid, then I'll be happy, if I just have this or that, there's always this unending list of wants, but your real need is to find your home through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do so, in that immediate moment, you see God and you experience for all of eternity what it means to be in a relationship with God face to face. You have come home. And when you understand this truth and you realize that you have done nothing on your own to be invited home into God's presence, then here's what happens. All the boundaries that you draw in your life, all the things that you create that cause you to think, you know what, those people are out and these people are in, all those boundaries will fall away. 
You see, if you don't realize that you are homeless until you find your home in God's presence, then what happens is, is you will look at other people who worship differently than you. I'm talking about style, not focused on Jesus Christ or who pray differently than you, or who vote differently than you, or who look differently than you, or who listen to different music, or this or that, you draw these boundaries and you say, they are out, my people are in, and therefore I will only shelter, I will only nurture, I will only be in fellowship with peeps like me. And therefore you are not the church, you will not be sent out with power, you will not be sent out with authority, there will be no healing in your midst because what you've done is you've missed the fact that the church is this place that realizes that they only find their home in the presence of God. And rather than creating these boundaries, this bounded set idea, you begin to realize that what matters for a church to be a church is that Jesus is at the center. I heard the story years ago about how uh, ranchers in Australia would spend all their time repairing the fences to keep the cattle and the sheep in. That's all they did. Miles and miles and miles they would would travel and they would just spend all the time trying to, to focus on getting the right fences to keep what they wanted in, to keep the wolves and the beasts out. Until they realized that, oh, you know what? Sheep and and cattle are drawn to water. They're drawn to shelter. They're drawn the shade. And they began to focus on just providing water, providing shelter, providing shade. And the cattle would flock and the sheep would flock. And they would then spend their time working on that and then defending against the wolves and the beasts that would come. You see, the church has to be the same thing. Rather than focusing on what are the boundaries of this church? Who's in, who's out? What do you have to wear? What do you have to not wear? What do you have to vote? What do you have to like? What do you have to listen to? When Jesus, who is the bread of life, when Jesus, who is living water, when Jesus says, whoever comes to me will find rest, is the center of this community, we invite everyone to come. No matter who you are. No matter your gender orientation. No matter your sociological status. No matter where you live. No matter what you love, no matter who you love, if you want to come and experience what it's like to be part of a community where Jesus is at the center, I say come. And we need to be a church that realizes that we are homeless, that the world is homeless, experiencing homelessness until we are face to face with our creator. And only that happens through Jesus Christ and faith and trust in him. But that's only the first theme. That's only part of the story. You see, if I ended there, we could still kind of venture off into this kind of American-made Christianity that is very independent and self-focused. You see, the second theme is this, that in actuality, there's a theme from Genesis to Revelation that God is a homeless God, that God experiences homelessness. And the story of Scripture is actually God's longing for, God's desire for, God's search to find a home. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, God had a home here on earth. 
It said that God dwelled with us here, that God walked with us in the cool of the day, that we were in a right relationship with God. And in that moment when we chose our way rather than God's way, when God was no longer the master of our house, Scripture then began to say that now the God of this world had authority. God's enemy, Satan, the accuser. Why don't you take a look at Isaiah 66.1. Isaiah 66.1 speaks of this homelessness of God, this, this experience of God longing, longing to find a dwelling place. It's on page 608. Chapter 66 of Isaiah. Even as you're still turning there, let me read it. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is my resting place? You see, I said earlier that the home is a place where you find freedom, where you find rest, where you can best express yourself, where you are safe, where you're accepted, where you're a master, queen, lord, king. Have you ever imagined God as a God that is homeless, that is longing for a place to finally be free, to be accepted, to express God's self? Have you ever thought about God in that way? That God is looking for a place to be king, that God is looking for a place to be lord, that God is looking for a place to be master? You can trace that theme through all of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation. One of those places is in Genesis 28. Why don't you go back there? In Genesis 28, there's this image, this great and glorious picture that in many ways is a foreshadow for where we're going to go in the next 10 minutes. But in Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10, it's on page 22 in your pew Bibles. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. Side note, man, rough pillow. <laughs> and he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring, and to your offspring they shall be like the dust of the earth, so many of them, and you shall spread about to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. And then it goes down. To verse 16, then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he is afraid. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Remember those two phrases. This is the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18, so Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone, his pillow, that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Now remember this. This will all connect in a moment. He's taking a dead stone, this inanimate object. He anoints it with oil. Oil throughout all of Scripture connotates life, abundance, blessing, thriving. It's the first living stone in Scripture. And he names this place Bethel, the house of God. And it's in a place where he literally sees heaven connected to earth. 
What we refer to as Jacob's ladder, there's this, there's this commute of angels going up and down. This is the gateway to heaven. And as Scripture begins to unfold, we begin to see things like a tabernacle, this place that was built in a very specific way for God to dwell. We see things like the Ark of the Covenant. We see God's presence dwelling in one place, in a particular place at one time, that God's presence would leave and it would come back. In the midst of all of these things, there's still this longing for God to have a permanent residence here on earth. In the same way that we experience homelessness, and won't find our home until we are face-to-face -face with God, God says, I'm experiencing homelessness, and I want to find a home to dwell in. Now, I want to fast forward. I could go for 17 hours on this topic and just go through chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1. As you begin to think about these things coming together, we have to go down this route, and I know you're hanging in there before we get back to these two great ends of the church. But in John chapter 1, it says this. It says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. This is speaking about Jesus. In verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. John is building a case that this man that we see, Jesus from Nazareth, is literally God in the flesh. That God the Son is how we can get a look at God the Father. And if you keep following it, you can take a look and it says in verse 51, that same chapter, Jesus, which is God in the flesh, now goes to Philip and then to Nathanael to come to follow after him. And it says this, verse 51, and he said to him, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Going all the way back to Genesis 28, remember Jacob. He sees this thing happening and angels up and angels down. He says, this is the house of the Lord. This place, Bethel, this living stone. You know what Jesus says? I am that living stone. There are angels that you will see ascending to heaven and coming to me. I am the very house of God. Take a look at John chapter 10. I'm not making this stuff up. John 10 verse 7. 872. I love that sound. Love that sound. And the swipes on your phones, I love it. 872, verse 7. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Remember what Jacob said? This is the gateway to heaven, this place. Jesus says, I am the gate. He goes on, verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in him and go out and find pasture. Not only are we the gate to God, Jesus is God's gate to us. What does it say in Colossians 1? Well, let's find out. Go to Colossians 1. Flip, flip, flip. Colossians 1. Getting a workout. Oh, I love this. Verse 15, this is about Jesus. It's all going to come together. Hang, hang with me. I know you are. 
956 in your pew Bible. 956, verse 15, Colossians 1, talking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Get ready for this. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God finally found a home in the person of Jesus, who was fully God, fully man. Wherever Jesus went, you saw what it was like for God to finally be at home, to be at rest, to be free, to express God's self to be Lord, to be master. The kingdom of heaven, that Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is now. Is simply what life looks like when God is at home. When the king has come back home, when the master is the head of his house. And so wherever Jesus went, the margins were brought in. People were healed. People were saved. People were rose from the dead. All these amazing, miraculous things happened. The last were now first. People were humble and poor in spirit who actually knew they needed a king, who needed a God, who needed a refuge, who weren't doing it on themselves, were brought in. Rather than thinking that you have to walk this amazing, amazing route to finally at the end of your life get into the kingdom of God, Jesus says, I am the gate, and if you put your faith and trust in me now, you're now in the kingdom. Now you ready for this? You might say, well, that's great. God found a home in Jesus. What does that have to do with the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus, after ascending to the right hand of the Father, didn't just ascend to the right hand of the Father, which Scripture says he's there right now. Before he did that, he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. If you look at Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1, it uses the exact same language. That Jesus, when Jesus was born, he was clothed with power. In Acts chapter 1, when the church is born, it is clothed with power. And there's this amazing truth. This is what happens. This is so amazing. When God gives through Jesus God's spirit to every person on earth who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Ready for this? God's home is not bound in one person like it was with Jesus. Through the Spirit, God's home is now dwelling with every single believer on earth. So here's the point that I want you to hear. You are the house of God when you've said yes to Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, you are where God says, finally, this house hunt is over. And some of you might immediately say, no, 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 not, not me, not me. I'm a piece of work. I'm like that house down in the corner. It's got cobwebs. It's got graffiti. You know, you know those places that it takes some people who really have vision to come in and say, well, this place has got good bones. And you're like, it does? I don't see it until there's that work. There's that restoration, that revival, that renewal of that home. And all of a sudden you're like, how did this happen? You know, the big reveal, all the shows that you obsess over. My wife obsesses over. I obsess over. We love that transformation. That's the picture of us. 
God who says in Isaiah 66, I am longing for a home. Who it says in Colossians 1, that God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Now, through the Holy Spirit, God has a dwelling place, and it's in you and it's in me, and not individually. It's collectively. You've got to understand that. Go to Acts chapter 9. As I round the corner here. Boy, how about them Dodgers, by the way? My gosh. Acts chapter 9. Saul, page 893 in your pew Bibles. Saul, great enemy of the early church, persecuting the church, approves of the killing of leaders of the church. Verse 3, page 893, chapter 9, says, Now as he, this is Saul, was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? It doesn't say my church. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's easy for us to think, oh, yeah, there's Jesus over there. And we're over here as his church. Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my brothers and sisters? He says, why are you persecuting me? In the Gospel according to Matthew, where it talks about Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, he says, whatever you have done to the least of these people, you've done to me. You've got to get out of your mind that the church and Jesus are separate. You've got to get out of your mind that the body of Christ is just some metaphor. It is reality. Through the power, and maybe some of you, this is the first time you're hearing this, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when the Bible says that we are the body of Christ, that Jesus is the head and we are his body, that's a real thing. It's not just like a neat, nifty way to say, oh, yeah, we can kind of like be his people that do his things. What would Jesus do? No. How did Jesus live his life? In complete obedience and through the power that God gave him. How do we live our life? Through obedience and through the power that God gives in and through us. You see, as the church, we are God's home where Christ can be experienced. But even more than that, what does it say in 1 Peter chapter 2? Let's go there. I know you didn't ask, but I'm taking you there. 1 Peter 2. Towards the end, it's on page 984. This is all coming together. 984. Remember that whole thing about Jacob's pillow? 1 Peter 2, page 984, verse 4. Come to him. By the way, he's talking to all of you right now and me. Come to him. This is God. Come to him, a living stone. Though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, this is Jesus, will never be put to shame. 
And then it goes down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, ready for this? You become a living stone. You, dead in your sin, have now been brought alive in Jesus Christ. And God wants a home built of living stones. He doesn't want a rock quarry. What do I mean by that? There's this thing, and it, it seems to only exist in America, where we think, oh, it's just me and Jesus. I can do my own thing. I don't need to be part of a community of people. I, I, I can just have this relationship with God, which you can. You have access to God. You don't need me. You don't need anybody else. You can go straight to him through Jesus Christ. But on the flip side, God says, I want a home, and I want you collectively to be my home. And on one hand, there's the global church, there's the historical church, and there's the local church. Will you be a home, Bel Air Church? Will you be a home for God? Will you be a place where God can find freedom, where God is welcome, where God can find rest? You've heard me say before that Bethany was a town very much unlike Jerusalem. Jerusalem, there's all this religious activity, there's all this religious worship, and God never found a place to rest his head. Jesus never slept in Jerusalem until the night he was killed. But in Bethany, this place where there was rejects, the lame, the lepers, men, women, people of different socioeconomic status, they welcome Jesus into their midst. And you see, if we are a church that says we exist, we as a church, we are for God's dwelling place. That's the, that's, the, that's the takeaway that took me about 30 minutes to get to. The church is for God's dwelling place. The church is for our dwelling place. By the time you get to Revelation, it has this picture of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven. It says, behold, God's dwelling place is with humanity. You see the bride of Christ, the church, Christ, this holy city. Scripture says one day we'll be one. And so when we understand those two trajectories, there's this great and glorious truth that there's not one person on the earth that God is not wooing, inviting, summoning to be part of God's household. And we have a very tangible opportunity to be a welcoming, a hospitable church. Not so that everybody can be their own Lord, but to invite everyone in with doors flung wide open to say, come and see what it's like in our lives individually and collectively to live in a household where Jesus is the head. He's the king. He's the Lord. And as we scatter and as we gather, as you live your life as the church, you get to exhibit, you get to reveal, you get to display the kingdom of heaven. What it's like when the true king is on the throne. Boy, it takes a lot of humility. 
to say, I am broken. I can't stand face to face with you, God. It takes a lot of humility to say, Jesus, I trust you and I accept, I receive what you've done on my behalf. It takes a lot of courage to go face to face with people you've wronged, to ask for forgiveness. It takes so much courage to go out into the world with boldness and love and kindness and humility. That's the life that Christ has called us to. Let me pray. God, we commit again. We want you to dwell in and through us. May we see that we are collectively one house that is reliant upon one another. That when we don't show up, that a rafter is missing, a beam is missing, a floor joist is missing. We welcome you here, God. Inhabit our worship right now. In Jesus' name, amen.